believe there is a PowerPoint as well. <laughs> I hope you like my Ghostbusters reference. I don't really know what age group that's relevant to anymore. There's been so many <laughs> reboots. <laughs> Hopefully someone gets it. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Today we are looking at Jesus as the high priest. I believe there's some notes coming around. I've done a very teachery uh, version of the notes today. I put some keywords in there, um, <laughs> partly to save myself some time because there's so much in these two passages that I can't cover that I've just put some extra bits <laughs> in the notes. So there's some bonus um, stuff in there if you want to have a look and also a summary of what I'm going to be talking about today. So we've got these two passages, which are all about Jesus as the high priest. Um, we've got Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 5, 10, and Hebrews 7, verse 1 to 28. We're going to start by just reading through the whole thing. I'm going to read through it, um, but if you've got a Bible or a digital Bible, um, it might be worth having that out. I'm going for NIV, if that helps. Um, anyone choose which <laughs> they're going to be looking at. You might be wondering why there's two passages and why there's a bit of a gap between the two. Um, and the reason for that helps us understand what's going on in these passages. We've kind of got the uh, second half of four and then the first bit of five are like a kind of an introduction to this idea of Jesus as high priest. After that, which is the second half of five and then the whole of six, the author of Hebrews goes on what I can only describe as a, a kind of rant um, about how their audience is not really necessarily trying to, kind of accepting this fact that we have to get into the technicalities of Hebrews. So they kind of go on this, you know, look, I know that you don't want to deal with the, these words that are going to come up in the next passage, and it's going to be tricky, but you really have to because it is important. And so the first passage, um, 4.14 to 5.10, is kind of like a beginner's introduction to Jesus as a high, pri high priest. And then we have this um, almost like preamble of, okay, the next bit's going to be really hard, <laughs> but bear with me, there's a reason for this. And then we go on to the advanced text, which is uh, chapter 7. And a lot after chapter 7 is, I would say, quite advanced as well. Now, there's enough in these passages for multiple sermons. So actually, I'm going to just try and unpack what I think is the basic and most central message in these passages and just sort of pick a few bits and, and find the argument within there. So we're going to do a bit of what we like to call in the business exegesis, which is where we just go through the text and find the arguments and then look at a practical application. The essential message is, oh, which button is it? Is it this one? Do I point it at you? <laughs> there we go. That's it. So um, the essential message of this text is that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. We're going to look at what high priest is. So if you're sitting there thinking, that means literally nothing to me, fear not. That's what we're going to do today. And this idea that he perfects this role and that the perfection of this role can nourish, deepen and expand our faith and trust in God in quite a radical way. So let's read through these passages to start with. Um, I'll highlight when we come to the advanced bit and you might notice the shift in language and the increase in technical funny terms that we get. So 414, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, 
let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive every mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was, Aaron being Moses' brother. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, and today I've become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now this word, we need to know a couple of things about this word. I've put a few extra bits in the notes. The key thing is that what it means is a king of righteousness, and we'll come back to this. So a priest who is a king of righteousness or justice. Verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who, who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so we're going on to the advanced section now. <laughs> Uh, chapter 7. So this Melchizedek was king of Salem, that's Jerusalem, and priest of the God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Jerusalem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests to collect a tenth of the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because Melchizedek met Abraham. Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Now, that bit, you're thinking, what on earth just happened <laughs> in that section? <laughs> Don't worry. Um, this next bit is the bit we're really going to focus on. But if you're interested in the kind of very niche Jewish argument that's being made here, there is some more on Melchizedek in the notes that you can have a look at. So, verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? 
For when the priest had changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has served at the altar. For it is clear that the Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. But a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become a guarantor of a better covenant. I think covenant is what we're looking at next week. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. So, we're going to try and unpack some of the ideas in this lengthy um, and dense text. Now, the first thing I think we need to unpack is just priests. What are priests? Who is this high priest? What's going on here? What's the relevance of all this? So, priests in the Old Testament did a few things. They were normal human beings, um, and they came from a particular bloodline. If anyone remembers Joseph and his 12 brothers, that family served as the basis for several, well, 12 tribes um, that formed Jewish society later on. Judah, the eldest, if any of you are reciting the Andrew Lloyd Webber in your head, um, he was where the line of kings like David, Solomon, and Christians believe Jesus came from. Levi, one of the other brothers, is where priests come from. And so priesthood is passed from father to son in this particular family line. Now, these priests were essential to Jewish life. What they did was they acted as an intermediate between humans and God, offering sacrifices to God as a way of apologizing for sin. They completed purity rituals as well, um, which symbolized God's cleansing of people and of Jewish society. And it was their job to deal with all of this stuff and administer all of these things. They also held a pastoral role, which meant they helped people understand their faith better, guiding them to live righteously. Now, amongst these priests, there's a high priest, and this person is particularly important. They are the only person that is allowed into the center of the Jewish temple. So at the center of the Jewish temple, we have this room, sometimes called the holiest of holies, sometimes called the tabernacle, sometimes called the kind of just the inner room. And in this, um, this is also where the Ark of the Covenant is, by the way. Um, if anyone's seen the Indiana Jones film, you'll get a sense of what happens if anyone just wanders in and has a look at the Ark of the Covenant. 
you melt effectively. Um, and so the high priest is allowed in this room once a year, only once a year, even the high priest. Um, this one day a year, they offer a sacrifice in this room on behalf of the people. This festival is called Yom Kippur. I don't know if anyone's heard of that. It's the Jewish Day of Atonement. It's the holiest and most sacred day in the Jewish calendar because it remembers this day when the high priest offers this particularly important symbolic sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. And this sacrifice is a, a symbol of paying the debt of sin, of doing wrong against each other, against God, against the world. And the priest offers it on behalf of those people. This priest would have been elected from other priests, usually older and wiser and more respected. Um, but often as well, someone who was charismatic, a man of the people, who people respected, got along well with, was good at his pastoral role and they would have been elected. And then usually when they died, someone else would take over. Um, the closest you probably have is like the Pope. It's probably a similar, <laughs> similar kind of thing, really. Um, now the priests were considered advocates for the people. This is a word that's gonna come up a lot today. Um, and again, there's a little definition on the notes, but the word advocate, have I done this? Yes, brilliant. The word advocate basically means someone who publicly recommends or supports a person. Um, it can be a legal word, so potentially a lawyer um, or a barrister. I think that's what a barrister does. Is someone who advocates on your behalf in court. So they argue your case for you. Um, it might also be someone who's an activist who's advocating on behalf of a particular group of people. Your MP, in many ways, is your advocate. They take your needs in your community, ideally, seriously, and they pass them on to government and they make your, you have elected them as a representative of you to the people. So this advocate is a, is a deep word. It has lots of different meanings, but get this idea of someone who represents you and makes your case on your behalf. And so priests were advocates of the people. The high priest in particular, his job was to present the case for the people. Now, it's a slightly funny use because one of the things we'll see is that the priest didn't really have a case to present. <laughs> he couldn't really argue that people deserved to be forgiven. And so the sacrifice system is his way of advocating. That's why it's in place in the Old Testament. People offer sacrifices as a way of being advocated for. And the purity rituals do the same thing. So the priest does these rituals as a way of advocating for the people, apologizing, sheepishly coming into this inner room and appealing desperately to God's mercy um, and sense of forgiveness for the people. And so this is advocation and priesthood in the Old Testament. Now the writer of Hebrews in the chapters that we're looking at sets up this um, difference between this old sense of priesthood and the new priesthood that Jesus creates. Now, remember, the writer of Hebrews isn't saying this old priesthood is bad. They're just saying it's a shadow. It's imperfect. It's pointing towards something greater. And so the writer unpacks the things that make the first priesthood imperfect and this second, newer, perfect priesthood perfect and permanent. And it's kind of dotted all over the place. So what I'm going to do just for the next little bit is try and unpick some of the key ideas um, so that we can understand what's happening with the main argument. So I've done it in sort of a little table. So firstly, human beings 
are sympathetic to human struggle, which is a bonus. In 5 verse 2, it says, priests are able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray, since the priest himself is subject to weakness. But, as the author also highlights, the downside is that you have to also offer sacrifices for yourself because you aren't actually any better than anyone else. You can't do anything any better. And so you're not really a good advocate because you haven't really got the argument. You can't really go in and say, you know, I get it better than other people because you don't get it better than other people. And so this meant that the advocation priests provided wasn't hugely effective. And this has several consequences. One is that because they're sinful, they're never really able to enter the presence of God fully. As we know, in the Old Testament, the presence of God is contained in this space, in this holy room, because it can't go anywhere else, because the rest of the world is sinful and unholy. No one is allowed in this room, because to access this presence of God is to die, because it's just too powerful and we are just too sinful. What this also means is that the priest can't bring that presence of God out into the world with them. So they can go out and they can say, um, the presence of God is there, God's forgiven you, and everyone just sort of has to trust the word of this person. It's sort of like what Susanna was saying about the pillars um, and how even though (laughs) God had created a pillar, people were still like, yeah, but I'm not sure that God's actually present. And so people have this relationship with God at a distance. They have this relationship with God on the trust of someone who is maybe good at their job, but is just a person just like them. The other symptom of this human priesthood is that the sacrifices and rituals needed to be done regularly by a whole host of priests because the idea was that these sacrifices were a kind of reason to remind yourself to throw yourself on God's mercy because you couldn't do it automatically. You had to kind of keep coming back to it. Now, as a teacher, um, there's a really strong analogy here with students where you have to have routines set up, otherwise it's chaos and anarchy and it's awful. Um, And you set up a routine and you get tired and as you kind of let the routine slip, the chaos increases. You can't just do the routine once and then it's fixed because kids will tend towards chaos. (laughs) Kids will tend towards just, you know, all sorts of things. So you have to maintain the routine. You have to do it again and again and again, otherwise people slip. And that's the idea behind these sacrifices. It had to be done again and again and again. It was never enough. In fact, this is the point where the writer of Hebrews in 7 verse 18 actually calls this process weak and useless. It didn't actually change people's hearts. Finally, the priest died. Um, Now, this might sound quite obvious, but I think there's something about this idea that these priests didn't last forever. Now, we're living in a particularly interesting political climate where we've had five prime ministers in the last six years. We've had three in the last six months. Um, Now, is this a process that fills us with confidence in our government that (laughs) gives us a sense of national stability, financial stability? Again, as someone with an investment in education, I don't know how many education, so I don't even even know who the education secretary is. (laughs) Who knows? But they come and they go and they can't get anything done and there's this sense of the office of prime minister because it cannot be fulfilled long term it just gives you the sense of are they going to do a good job is the next person going to do a good job even if the person you get is brilliant 
you're worried that eventually they're going to leave and then isn't the next person going to be just as good? That's why many argue that democracy is maybe the best of a series of bad systems because at least if they're terrible, they won't last very long and then you can get someone else in. <laughs> so it limits the damage. But the idea is that because these high priests died, there was just, you couldn't fully have confidence in what they were doing because they were fallible, they were limited. Their relationship with the office was flawed. And so you could kind of trust them, but not mostly. There's a sense in your life of faith that you kind of have to maybe take it into your own hands. You kind of have to maybe offer your own sacrifices. You have to make sure you live a moral life because this person's just like you. They're fallible, just like you. Now, as we know, the argument of Hebrews is that Jesus changes all of this. So we have a look. We've got Jesus, the high priest, and he perfects each of these things. So number one, Jesus is tempted like the rest of us, but lived without sin. He defeated the temptation. So he's an advocate who understands us, understands where we come from, but also did not sin. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, during the days of Jesus's life, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He learned obedience through what he suffered. That's quite strong words, this idea of Jesus learning obedience. That's not to say that he was not perfect to begin with, but he learned from his time on earth through overcoming temptation. That gave him a, that was a real human experience of, of overcoming this. And so what this means for us is that Jesus is able to enter the presence of God. Hebrews says he ascended into heaven, into the very presence of God. We learn from our series in John that Jesus has a permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God. He can't just enter the holy room once a year. He is carrying the presence of that room around with him everywhere he goes. When you encounter Jesus, you don't have to trust him about what God is like. You are encountering what God is like. Because of all his authority, he not only carries the Spirit of God with him, but sends the Holy Spirit of God out to the people as a further. Can anyone remember that word in John 14, 26 is used to describe the Holy Spirit? Advocate. Exactly. That is not an accident that that is the same word. Because the Holy Spirit sent through Jesus as the advocate, also becomes our advocate, and he dwells with us every day. This is a completely different relationship with the presence of God that changes our lives. This also means that Jesus goes with confidence. I'm going to mention the Melchizedek priest, because what this means is a king, a priest who is a king of righteousness and justice, the high priest can only appeal to God's mercy, but Jesus can also appeal to God's justice because he has made us right with God, because he has sacrificed himself. We do not have to approach God sheepishly and afraid. That idea of routines in kids, Jesus has enabled us to have an inner sense of what it means to relate to God. I can only dream of what this would look like in children. <laughs> they have this innate sense. But in many ways, it's an identical thing, that we have this ability to have an innate sense of being in the presence of God, of what it means to follow and obey and love him and love others. We don't need to go back to these rituals every time to remind ourselves because we're given a permanent sense of it. 
And finally, he lives forever. So he is the only advocate needed, which means we can fully put our trust in him. His permanence as the high priest completes his perfection. Imagine being a promised leader who would never act selfishly, never make a mistake, work for the best for everyone, be a model, demonstrably create a fair and just society. Our confidence in this person would be full and complete. And this really is the climax of the entire argument in these passages. The argument is made that Jesus is such a kind of high priest that you can totally and utterly put your trust in him as an advocate for you. Do not turn to anyone or anything else. Now, this is the challenge. Remember at the very start, we said that in each passage, there's a challenge for us. And so the final thing I'm going to say before I finish is just a pause on what this challenge might mean for us. What does it mean for us to totally and completely trust Jesus as an advocate. Now, we might think, okay, well, I live in a priestless world. For the Jewish people, this might have meant, don't put your trust in rituals. Don't put your trust in following the 613 Jewish laws. Don't put your trust in trying to offer sacrifices and trying to purify your own life. Just put your trust in Jesus. And for us, actually, although we don't have that system necessarily, we do have a similar sense. Tim Keller argues that people cannot help but make our lives into a trial. We are constantly trying to prove ourselves to our friends, our parents, our bosses, our partners, our Christian community, our university. We are defending ourselves against the world, trying to prove that we are worth it, that we have done something useful and valuable or moral. We constantly feel the need to advocate for ourselves that we're smart enough, beautiful enough, moral enough, productive enough, healthy enough, funny, talented enough, worth hiring, promoting, worth liking, worth admiring, worth loving. I know that when I trained to be a teacher, I spent an entire year creating printing filing, literally thousands of resources that you have to put in this, there's teachers nodding, I can see you, putting into this ridiculous folder that I don't think anyone even looked at at the end of the day. But you spend the whole year gathering evidence. Everything you do is evidence to prove that you're worth allowing to be a teacher. And in many ways, this is how we live our lives. We just, little bits of our lives are about trying to prove to ourselves or to other people that in whatever way we are worth it. And we're hardwired to advocate for ourselves, Christianity claims, because we're hardwired to be loved and accepted. And yet we live in a world where this kind of love and acceptance is extremely hard, if not impossible, to find. Obviously, Christianity claims that this real and genuine love and acceptance exists and can be found in God. The old priestly system gave people a sense of that love, but at a distance, on the horizon, behind the curtain, literally. Jesus' priesthood opens up this love and acceptance to everyone. It brings it up close and personal. It drenches us in God's love so that we no longer have to advocate for ourselves. The message of the Bible is this, this experience of love, although promised us by the world in a million different packages, brands, deals, promises, can only truly be found permanently, confidently, by allowing Jesus to be our high priest and our advocate. Jesus looks at our burdened and weary souls, where we try to prove ourselves and fight for love in fruitless and often destructive and harmful ways, and say, it is done. 
you are loved, not temporarily, there's no probation, confidently bask and marinate and delight in a burdenless, yokeless, conditionless love that frees us up to live a life overflowing with worship, contentment and love. And I think the challenge is that I would confidently say that every single one of us in this room does this in some way, that we rely on our own advocation in some way. And I think sometimes that can be seen as humility, but it actually isn't because if we have total confidence in Jesus, we don't need to put confidence anywhere else. Do we have complete trust in him or do we have mostly trust, but we're not quite convinced, so we have to do a little bit ourselves. I think that's a real challenge because I think if we sit and reflect and pray, there'll be something in our lives, whether it's connected to our faith or completely unconnected, that we are trying to prove ourselves somewhere. And Jesus says, you do not need to do this. I am your advocate. I am completely there. You are completely loved and accepted. So I think we're going to have a time of worship. And I just want to really encourage everyone to spend this time really reflecting and praying on that and allowing Jesus to sit with you, to be with you, to allow you to bask, refreshed and renewed in that advocation that you can totally, totally trust in him.